hopefully uh, uh, you won't feel like we're doing too abrupt of a dive back into Daniel. Um, but uh, for the sake of knowing that we've kind of been out and doing holidays and stuff, um, I'll try to onboard you safely into the text tonight, um, first by reading it and then by walking through it. So uh, Daniel chapter 10, I'll be reading all of chapter 10 and then the first two verses of chapter 11. So in the third year of Cyrus, king of Persia, a, world was, a word was revealed to Daniel, who was named Belshazzar, and the word was true, and it was a great conflict. And he understood the word and had understanding of the vision. In those days, I, Daniel, was mourning for three weeks. I ate no delicacies, nor meat, nor wine entered my mouth, nor did I anoint myself at all for, for the full three weeks. On the 24th day of the first month, as I was standing on the bank of the great river, that is the Tigris, I lifted up my eyes and looked, and behold, a man clothed in linen with a belt of fine gold from Uphaz around his waist. His body was like beryl, his face was like the appearance of lightning, his eyes like flaming torches, his arms and legs like the gleam of burnished bronze, and the sound of his words was like the sound of a multitude. And I, Daniel, alone saw the vision. For the men who were with me did not see the vision, but a great trembling fell upon them, and they fled to hide themselves. So I was left alone and saw this vision, and no strength was left in me. My radiant appearance was fearfully changed, and I retained no strength. Then I heard the sound of his words, and as I heard the sound of his words, I fell on my face in deep sleep with my face to the ground. And behold, a hand touched me and set me trembling on my hands and knees. And he said to me, O Daniel, a man greatly loved, understand the words that I speak to you and stand upright, for now I have been sent to you. And when he had spoken this word to me, I stood up trembling. Then he said to me, Fear not, Daniel, for from now to the first day that you set your heart to understand and humbled yourself before your God, your words have been heard, and I have come because of your words. The prince of the kingdom of Persia withstood me twenty-one days, but Michael, one of the chief princes, came to help me. For I was left with there with the kings of Persia, and I came to make you understand what is to happen to your people in the latter days, for the vision is for the days yet to come. When he had spoken to me according to these words, I turned my face toward the ground and was mute. And behold, one in the likeness of the children of man touched my lips. And then I opened my mouth and spoke, and I said to him who stood before me, O my Lord, by reason of the vision, pains have come upon me, and I retain no strength. How can my Lord's servant talk with my Lord? For now no strength remains in me, and no breath is left in me. And again, one having the appearance of a man touched me and strengthened me. And he said, O man greatly loved, fear not. Peace be with you. Be strong and be of good courage. And he spoke to me. And as he spoke to me, I was strengthened. And I said, Let my Lord speak, for you have strengthened me. And then he said, Do you know why I have come to you? But now I will return to fight against the prince of Persia. And when I go out, behold, the prince of Greece will come. But I will tell you what is inscribed in the book of truth. There is none who contends by my side against these except Michael, your prince. And as for me, in the first year of Darius the Mede, I stood up to confirm and to strengthen him. And now I'll show you the truth. So this is Daniel chapter 10 and some change in Daniel chapter 11. Uh, this uh, is one gigantic introduction to the close of the book of Daniel. So it might not feel like it, uh, but we're almost there to the end. And this last vision in Daniel expands from chapter 10 to chapter 11 and into chapter 12. It's all one vision. 
Um, but because of its length and complications, we're going to try to take a couple of weeks to break it out. So just this week, we're going to be looking at the introduction and let's say the purpose behind the vision. Um, and if you like, uh, this, is just, this is just all about that final vision and all of its uh, various component parts. So uh, Daniel is, is, is engaging a little bit in worldview building. He has kind of been throughout his whole book. And this has is, this is often been observed by people, uh, even in our modern age, that everyone does in fact have a worldview that they carry around and that they interpret the world through. No one's an, uh, an objective interpreter of events. So if you, uh, for instance, have a conversation with someone, uh, you might have had this experience where when you're alone later at some time in the future, you revisit that previous conversation and interaction, what you said to them, how did that come across, you're trying to interpret what was said, how was it said, how was it communicated, and when they say things to you, you might reflect and say, well, what did they mean by that? You know, and you do that way beyond the moment in which even that conversation takes place. It's because you're not just, you don't just care about objectively what is being said, you also care about subjectively, what does that mean? How do I interpret these events? How, do, how does the world going on around me, how do, I, how do I understand it? And we all do this all the time. We, we do this even down to the very, uh, if you look at the, the creation around you or this building or a car, uh, we interpret what we see via certain lenses, right? We know that if you look at a car, there's a car manufacturer and we can see the design and the beauty of, of that car. Some will take that same logic and look at creation and say, we see the design and the beauty in that creation. There must be a creator behind it. We're interpreting those events. Others would say, no, 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 a different interpretation. This is the product of millions of years of time and chance and, and evolution. Uh, we're all interpreting these events. Daniel is engaging in worldview building when he, when he builds the world of uh, of his book. Uh, he's taught us about uh, a world where God reigns sovereign, despite the fact that Babylon has enslaved the Jewish people. He's taught us about a world where God reigns sovereign, even though Babylon's in control and oppressing the Jewish people, and God's sovereignty is proven by the fact that Daniel and his three friends are vindicated in the fact that they exist in an empire and rise to power, despite harsh opposition against them. And then he turns, and in chapter 7 and onward, begins his worldview building of a future uh, in which God continues to reign sovereignly uh, despite all of the unfolding things which kind, of, which kind of come about. Now, you might want to say, well, that's just Daniel's worldview, but scripture is, is part of the corpus in which Daniel is writing. And, and scripture and Daniel share this worldview, at least some, in some parts. Uh, for instance, Daniel's worldview tells us, uh, at least in this chapter, that prayer actually impacts things in the world around him. That's an interesting worldview claim, right? If you were to go to your average professor at a major university today and you were to ask them, when I pray, is that gonna change things in my world and in my reality? And the best, uh, most optimistic answer you'd probably get from a secular professor is, prayer might make you feel better about the situation around you. It might help you to understand and process it, very similar to like journaling out your thoughts, but it's not actually going to change anything out in reality. Words can't do that kind of thing. If you want to change something in reality, you have to go do it, or you have to get other people to do it for you. You have to pass a law, you have to uh, seize control with power. That's what you have to do to change things in reality. Daniel says prayer is, is one means, actually a very powerful means, by which you change things in reality. We've seen this in Daniel chapter 9 with his extended prayer for the future of his people. We see it here again in chapter 10 in the opening verses where he spends time not just praying, but afflicting himself by fasting, uh, afflicting himself by not even not even really socializing with people. Uh, and he doesn't have to do this. He's high up old man in the Babylonian empire. He should be 
retired somewhere, right? Enjoying the, the fruits of his many years of faithful labor, and, and yet he's afflicting himself for the purpose of seeking the benefit of his people, even after Cyrus has already sent them back to Jerusalem. So Cyrus has already commissioned the Israelites back at this point in time, and Daniel is now still praying, seeking the face of God for his people. And how do we know the content of his prayer? Is by the angel who comes to visit him, says, I'm coming to tell you, and the answer to your prayer, which is concerning your people and the time from now until the end, right? That's, uh, you see that in verse 14. I came to make you understand what is to happen to your people in the latter days for this vision is for the days yet to come. So why would the angel be giving that answer out of the blue? It's probably the very thing Daniel was praying for. We saw this also in chapter 9. So in Daniel's worldview, prayer impacts reality and, and in a really fundamental kind of way. Also in Daniel's worldview, uh, this is a simple observation, but the supernatural exists. And what I mean by that is if you, if you were reading the text and you pay attention, you notice this, this, there's an angel, yes, supernatural being who comes and visits Daniel. There's a vision of the future which happens. But also, uh, there's a prince of Persia, there's a prince of Greece, and there's angels who are combating these princes of these places. That's kind of interesting, right? We know Persia is the current ruling empire, and unless you're willing to say, well, the angel was fighting the king of Persia, if you like, the prince of Persia, it, it is likely that the angel is doing battle with some spiritual force which is opposing the angel, referred to as the prince of Persia. And the prince of Greece is something similar, and, and we, we might observe that he even calls Michael in the last verse of chapter 10 a prince. He says, Michael is your prince, and Daniel is over the Jewish people. So Michael is the prince or the, the spiritual authority that governs and protects the Jewish people, whereas there's a prince over Greece and a prince over Persia. In, in Daniel's world, my point is, the supernatural exists. That's why prayer, if you're making some connections, that's why prayer impacts reality, because prayer accesses God's ability to touch the supernatural world, and the supernatural does exist and impacts things in the real world. So in Daniel's worldview, here's a world he's creating, and the Bible creates this world kind of consistently. And the last thing I want to observe just before we get into, let's say, understanding and unpacking all these things, is in Daniel's worldview, God is real, but not only that, he's, he's intimately involved with care and concern for his people and in such a way that he unfolds and shapes the outcomes of history. Now, this is something we could have observed in Daniel chapter 1. We did. Uh, we could have observed it again in Daniel chapter 2, in chapter 3, chapter 4, chapter 5, chapter 6, chapter 7, chapter 8, and chapter 9. But I'm doing it here in chapter 10 uh, because now there's a whole corpus of evidence of consistent worldview building where Daniel says God cares about his people in such a way that he's going to shape the outcome of history. Essentially, for their good long-term. So these are worldview claims, and in chapter 10, all those worldview claims are important because the answer to Daniel's prayer uh, and the believability of it hangs on those worldview claims. If you don't believe in any of that worldview or share that with Daniel, you're going to find a lot of what he's going to talk about here pretty unbelievable. Uh, but Daniel would say, uh, we're crazy for not looking at the world as it is, seeing all that unfolds and concluding this is random chance. Daniel would say we're crazy for that, if, if we were to conclude that. So let's enter into Daniel's world and ask him, what's the point? What are you trying to communicate to us in your introduction here? Why do you spend a whole chapter introducing the answer to the prayer? You don't even get to the meat of it. You just get to, you know, warming yourself up for that, that vision. And so here we go. Uh, the first thing I want you to see, uh, the timing of the prayer. So there's, there's Cyrus, king of Persia. It's in his third year. 
Uh, this likely refers to Cyrus's third year after he's conquered Babylon. So remember, he takes over Babylon. That's when Persia kind of rises to power, that Medo-Persian empire. So this is probably not Cyrus's third year reigning on the throne uh, because he reigned in Medo-Persian empire before he reigned in Babylon. This is probably referring, at least according to Daniel's timeline, Cyrus's third year as king after he's conquered Babylon. So three years after that. Uh, so chronologically, that's the last event in, in Daniel's book. Um, and here he is, Daniel uh, standing here. Uh, and verse 2 tells us it's in these days that we've just seen the power change. Daniel's already seen all this faithfulness. He's an old man. In these days, Daniel is mourning for three weeks. He ate no delicacies, no meat, nor wine that entered his mouth, nor did he anoint himself at all for the full three weeks. So we might ask the question, well, why, Daniel, do you afflict yourself in this way? Uh, you've been faithful for so long. Why is it that you're still doing this? And maybe we can conclude uh, that this is part of what Daniel thinks faithfulness looks like, is to always be vigilant in this kind of way. So what I mean by that is when you get to, uh, I don't know, if you look at the church today, and you, and you see all of God's faithfulness built up through 2,000 years of church history and thousands of years of Jewish history before that, uh, we might conclude we're at a place where we don't need to afflict ourselves and mourn and pray because, you know, that was for people who had real need and real affliction, and we're kind of riding, uh, riding well, if you like. Um, but history tells us that it doesn't matter how faithful you've been or how faithful you currently are. Part of what faithfulness looks like is, is prayer, and not just kind of prayer in some, uh, some removed sense where you say a couple of words of good wishes for someone else, but a, a prayer that kind of, let's say, sucks the life out of you, if you like. In, in Daniel verse 3, or sorry, Daniel chapter 10, verse 3, you see that he afflicts himself, but the result of this affliction is he's in kind of a weakened state so that several times as he sees the vision and understands what's going on and it's explained to him, he's struck down, falling down, passing out, falling into deep sleep. Like he's, he's not in a physically healthy disposition when, when all this stuff is transpiring. But that seems to be part of what it is to pray in this kind of a state. Um, you have similar kinds of things when you have Jesus in the New Testament praying in the Garden of Gethsemane, engaging in spiritual warfare against the powers that be, about to be at the moment of his most vulnerable and most triumphant, and he's sweating blood, he's, he's not eating, he's going sleepless nights, which no health expert would advise you to do on a regular basis. And that kind of affliction seems to be something that sharpens you in a way in which it makes you more acutely in tune with, with prayer. And I think that in, in the West, this is something Christians have have lost a good sense of is that a prayer is not something that should be always comfortable or always casual or always routine. Sometimes for moments or needs or seasons in the church, there are these intense afflicted points. Now you might say, well, what is it? Daniel's not in the lion's den currently. So what is his need? It's actually not Daniel's need. It's actually the need of Israel, which Daniel in his retirement from Babylon is praying for. So Daniel from the comfort of his, let's say safe protected position in Babylon, is praying for the Israelites who've just gone out to rebuild Jerusalem under all the affliction that you read about in Ezra and Nehemiah. And let's say from his safe position, he's going to identify with his brothers and sisters and pray for them in their affliction. We could learn, I think, a thing or two from that because we have brothers and sisters who right now are facing persecution from Boko Haram in China, under Moscow. If you just read, for example, or if you just listen to Voice of the Martyrs radio, uh, you'll learn all about the affliction and the suffering of Christians all around the world. That might stir you to a kind of prayer like this. I'm not saying every day, but I'm saying Daniel does seem to think that it's partially his duty and responsibility to pray for others like this. 
And that, that, that hinges on his world viewpoint, which is that prayer does impact reality. Prayer isn't just something you do as like a nice wish to someone, which I think in the West, we, we tend to think about prayer. I'm, I'll be praying for you, right? Daniel doesn't think about prayer like that. So Daniel, for, for him, prayer means something, and he lives in the world in such a way in which prayer actually impacts the world. So you see that in the first couple of verses. Uh, the next piece that is, is probably worth reminding ourselves at this point um, is that all these visions, which are going to be very confusing, we'll get into those in, in chapter 11 and, and 12, all these visions are meant to communicate something which is a primary, primarily a message of encouragement. So I could draw from earlier in Daniel where we see that kind of thing. It's, it's written to exiles for their encouragement to tell them to live faithfully in the world. But even in the text here, um, if you look at Daniel's interaction with the angel, you'll, you'll notice that kind of coming up over and over and over again. Um, for instance, verse uh, 10 and verse 11, uh, this is after he's fallen on his face and seen the vision. He, he says, Behold, a hand touched me and set me trembling on my hands and knees. And he said to me, this, this person, O Daniel, now notice what he says to him, a man greatly loved, understand the word that I speak to you, stand upright, for now I have been sent to you. And then if you were asked the question, why was he sent to Daniel? Verse 12, look at the, the, quoted, the quoted section. Fear not, Daniel, for from the first day that you set your heart to understand and humbled yourself before your God, your words have been heard, and I have come because of your words. The prince of the kingdom of Persia withstood me for 21 days, but Michael, one of the chief princes, came to help me, for I was left there to the kings of Persia and came to make you understand what is to happen to your people in the latter days. And then if you look again, after, after he passes out uh, a second time, or after he, let's say, falls weak a second time. Uh, verse 16 tells us about one who comes in the likeness of a children of man, touches Daniel's lips. Uh, and then uh, Daniel says, Oh, my Lord, by reason of the visions, pains have come upon me, and I retain no strength. And verse uh, 18 tells us that this, or sorry, verse 19 tells us that this man says to him, Oh, man, greatly beloved, fear not. Peace be with you. Be strong. Be of good courage. So the communication of, of these messengers to Daniel is, is a message of courage. This vision is terrifying, but the thrust of it is for you to be encouraged, for you to have knowledge and understanding of what's going to transpire for your people. It's not primarily to uh, discourage you, it's primarily to encourage you. Now, Daniel needs interpretation, which is about to be provided, which we'll look at in the, co the coming weeks. And that interpretation is something that's going to clarify and, and help Daniel understand how is this an encouraging message. Um, but the point is, the angel's telling him on the front end, it is an encouraging message, and now explain to you essentially why. Um, so that's, I think, a second piece to observe is uh, Daniel thinks prayer is important, but not only that, the, the vision is for the purpose of encouragement, whatever other confusion uh, we might have that lies in the vision. Um, and then the last, the last piece uh, that I think is, is worth observing uh, from this text, um, and this is not necessarily unique uh, either to chapter 10, but uh, if you look at the language of the description of, of these messengers, um, and, and Daniel's response to the messengers, uh, you get a sense of, let's say, the terrifying nature of which an encounter with the supernatural actually is. So, uh, for instance, uh, we'll just pick up in verse 5. So this is Daniel in the vision. He says, I lifted my eyes and I looked, and behold, a man clothed in linen with a belt of fine gold from Uphaz around his waist. Now, this seems like a very safe description, right? Verse 6, his body was like beryl, his face like the appearance of lightning, his eyes like flaming torches, his arms and legs like the gleam of burnished bronze, and the sound of his words is like the sound of a multitude. Now it gets more terrifying, right? This being is clothed in white linens, but he's a terrifying being. 
eyes like a flame of fire. That would be language that Revelation would use to describe something similar uh, in the vision of John. Um, so here you have this, and then Daniel uh, is terrified by this uh, to the point where even people who don't see this vision flee, flee uh, from the scene, probably because they hear what's going on without, without seeing it. So they hear the voice, that's likely what happens, because Daniel tells us it's not because they saw it, but yet they have the sense to flee and tremble. Uh, verse 8 tells us that Daniel is left alone, and this vision that he saw left no strength in him. Uh, I think this should give us at least some sense of an appreciation for what Daniel, Isaiah, Ezekiel, Jeremiah, Moses would have gone through in terms of tax on their body to communicate divine revelation to us. I don't think we have a sense of the importance of essentially what it would take for someone to, to see direct revelation from God and walk away with enough coherence to actually record that and pass it on. Now, this is an interesting thing, and I think every commentator that I read on this text observed this reality. Even when you get to the New Testament, it's kind of the same thing. When the disciples see a transfigured Jesus, they have no idea what to do. When, when the angels show up and talk to Mary and Joseph, they, they always have to say, leading with, don't be afraid, don't be terrified, don't be, don't be scared of what you're seeing. Why do they have to lead with that? Unless the natural response of a human would be fear, trembling, uh, great distress at the vision of a supernatural thing. Now, this all is to say that when we look at and appreciate what Daniel had to go through and these other prophets to record these visions for us, I think it might give us pause and maybe a little bit more of an appreciation, one, to read the text of Scripture, which passes on that revelation, but two, not to go looking ourselves for other means of the supernatural being revealed to us, uh, (laughs) primarily because of, let's say, the cost to us. Scripture doesn't commend to us in the New Testament that we go outside of God's word to seek God's face. Uh, and yet there's many people uh, that I've even heard of who will say things like, oh, I talk to God very casually and he shows up to me and he talks to me. It's like, if that's happening, if that's happening, <laughs> Daniel's response seems at least a mild indicator of what should be the ballpark response, right? Um, and if we really appreciate what he's going through, I think we would say, I'm thankful Daniel had to go through that. Um, I, am, I am happy to see the translation and, and learn from it and be edified by it. Um, and I'm going to be very appreciative of Daniel and Isaiah and all those who went before to actually record these things. I think it's, it's the same kind of approach we can take to, to Scripture where we, I don't know if you, you read a lot about church history or know about the, the way the English Bible got into your hands, but people under burnt, being burned at the stake, persecution, being thrown in prison, beaten, having their families killed, took the Bible from languages that we couldn't understand and translated them into languages that we could and then made sure to make that Bible freely available, even today where people will smuggle Bibles into other countries so people can have access to God's word. If we appreciate the sacrifice that others had to make to get Scripture into our hands, I think it gives us a certain appreciation when we open up the text of Scripture and we read it and we try to understand it. And we, uh, we have a plethora of English translations, but these came at a, at a high blood price from other people that we're not necessarily required to take on ourselves. That was their sacrifice to make. Uh, But we can, in some sense, appreciate their sacrifice by reading and committing ourselves to the study uh, of these texts. So uh, kind of with all those, let's say, tertiary observations in place, let's make, let's say, one overarching main observation from chapter 10. This is more connected with, let's say, the through line of where 10 fits in the the motif of Daniel. in my English Bible, uh, it's ESV, uh, the, the subtitle of chapter 10 is Daniel's Terrifying Vision of Man. Um, I think that is a, a fitting introduction to all that's about to transpire in chapter 11 and chapter 12. 
the vision, which we will read about in the coming weeks, uh, speaks to essentially the unfolding of history unto the salvation of Israel and, and really the salvation of God's people. Uh, now, people will debate about when exactly these things unfold, and we'll, we'll spend time talking about that. But if you were to ask the main question of, well, what is the purpose of the vision? It's to encourage God's people for the sake that they would endure faithfully, uh, like Daniel and like others who would read this uh, would endure. Uh, if you were to, let's say, skip to, uh, I don't know, a conclusion at the end of the vision, uh, I just want you to skip over to chapter 12. It kind of gives us the, the through line of it. Uh, it's at the end of chapter 12, and it's verse uh, uh, 13. And this is the final instruction given to Daniel. This is at the end of the vision that he's just been introduced to. Um, but go your way till the end, and you shall see rest, and you shall stand in your allotted place at the end of days. So Daniel's essentially parting instruction is not that he has to live through and see and understand all this vision, but essentially he's got to do his part, which is record the vision. And then he's got to go his way till the end. And you shall rest and stand in your allotted place at the end of, at the end of days. The final note of encouragement to Daniel is all of this that's about to transpire is going to conclude with your rest and your standing essentially safe at the end of time. That is a, is a rather encouraging thing. Uh, when, you, when you're going to get into this vision, you're going to become very confused very quickly. There's a lot of stuff going on. But if we keep that uh, encouragement message, the message of endurance at the center, I think it's helpful um, because that makes it actually a practical thing for us. Now, for us, uh, who's people who stand very far removed from the happenings of these things, this vision actually, I think, is one of the best testimonies to the validity and the, ver- the, the truth that scripture and prophecy are in fact real because of how, how well they predict things that are going to happen hundreds of years in the future. Um, it's very similar to the visions in chapter 7 and chapter 8 and, and much of chapter 9 as well, uh, chapters 11 and 12. Um, but, but all of that to say that that primary motif hasn't actually changed in, in really any of Daniel. The exhortation to encourage, to endure well, to suffer well in a world that is opposed to Christians because the worldview of Daniel is that God is sovereign even if it doesn't look like at this moment in time God is in absolute control. The point is that he is, and this vision actually pulls back and shows you God's in control. How do we know that? The prince of Persia can't hold off this messenger to Daniel. Michael defeats the prince of Persia. Michael is a servant of God. They're triumphing even though the Jewish people are still under the thumb of the Persians. And the Persians are going to be given over to the Greeks in a a moment. And, And the Jewish people are given unique insight into that that these other people don't have access to. So if you look at the world from a purely secularist, naturalist worldview, and you look at the happenings around you, you're Daniel, you're saying, I don't know what this angel's talking about, but Persia's in charge now, and Persia's going to win. They're stronger than any other empire. And the angel comes and kind of subtly says in verse uh, 20, by the way, after I leave, the prince of Greece is going to come, and you know, Persia's, he kind of does like an off note, says, by the way, Persia's not actually all that strong. They're going to lose. And, and I think there's something about that that kind of undercuts the, the natural tendency we have to look at world powers and see them on their face and say, that is what is really powerful. In, in Daniel, the worldview he's building is that God is really powerful and everything else is kind of a, a plot point in history to get to the terminus, which is that God is actually sovereign, will be found to be so. Um, so with that being said, uh, I'd just like to close this in a word of prayer and then uh, we can move on to some, some discussion time. So. Father, uh, we thank you for uh, this day uh, that you have given to us, uh, this time that you have uh, permitted us to gather and to uh, read your word, to commit our minds to understanding it. 
Uh, Lord, we thank you for this message here recorded in Daniel, um, which might seem strange to us and yet um, is meant for our encouragement and for uh, our edification. Uh, Lord, we pray that we would uh, be edified by it, uh, that we would learn from the study of your word all that there is to know about you, uh, as much as our minds and our hearts are capable of soaking up. And we pray for your grace as we endeavor to do that. We pray this all in your name. Amen.